This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Tonight, straight from the source, a new Joint Chiefs chairman finally confirmed, but Republican Senator Tommy Tuberville is still blocking hundreds of military confirmations and military families are still caught in the middle. Plus, Attorney General Merrick Garland firing back at some of his fiercest Republican critics today, declaring that he's not the president's lawyer or Congress's prosecutor. And a new fight for number two in the Republican presidential race, and it is not Governor Ron DeSantis. I'm Caitlin Collins, and this is The Source. The Attorney General grilled on Capitol Hill today. For Republicans on the House Judiciary Committee, it was a preview of what's to come when their impeachment inquiry kicks off next week. The fix is in. Even with the face-saving indictment last week of Hunter Biden, everyone knows the fix is in. Uh, He originally offered Hunter Biden a sweetheart deal. Has anyone at the department told President Biden to knock it off with Hunter? During that combative hearing, the attorney general pushed back forcefully on Republican accusations while also defending what he says is the independence of the investigation into President Biden's son. No one that I know of has spoken to the White House about the Hunter Biden case. I'm wondering then. I left it to Mr. Weiss whether to bring charges or not. No one has told me uh, who should be indicted uh, in in, in any matter like this. And uh, the decision about indictment was made by Mr. Smith. I am not the president's lawyer. I will add, I am not Congress's prosecutor. Mayor Garland also said that he has not interfered in the special counsel's investigation into Hunter Biden. That was central to Republican questions today, whether or not U.S. Attorney David Weiss, who was appointed by former President Donald Trump, had the authority to decide whether or not the president's son should be charged. Of course, keep in mind here, Weiss himself has told the committee's chair, quote, and this is from a letter that he sent to Jim Jordan, I have been granted ultimate authority over this matter. The FBI agent who is managing the team told the committee also that David Weiss had the authority and said, quote, there has never been anything in my view that changed that. As for the IRS whistleblower that Republicans often point to as the basis for their questions, Gary Shapley, who you have seen on this program, a high ranking IRS official has disputed some of his claims. My next guest kicked off today's hearing by focusing on some of those central claims. Let's get straight to the source tonight with Congressman Mike Johnson of Louisiana, a member, of course, as I mentioned, of the House Judiciary Committee. Congressman, thank you for joining me tonight. What we saw today as we looked at that hearing, is that a roadmap of what Republicans' impeachment inquiry is going to look like? Oh, I wouldn't say that. I mean, we were performing our constitutional function there. The Judiciary uh, Committee has oversight responsibility over the Department of Justice. And so the attorney general routinely appears before the, the our committee to, to answer questions. You know, we found uh, the attorney general today to be very evasive and non-responsive to some of the most important and I think fair questions that were asked. And, you know, we have a problem with it. 
Well, a lot of the questions seem to be centered around David Weiss himself, the U.S. attorney, and his recent elevation to special counsel. But to the point that your fellow congressman and Republican, Ken Buck, made, uh, he said essentially there's this idea that Republicans would have revolted if Attorney General Garland had either not made him the special counsel as he asked or if he had fired him when he became attorney general. Well, I don't know about that, Caitlin, but what I do know is the American people are losing faith in this Justice Department. 65%, that's what the poll says, 65% of Americans have a negative view of the Department of Justice under Merrick Garland. And the reason is because they see a politicized Justice Department. They see a two-tiered system of justice. They see, by way of example, speaking of Mr. Weiss, you know, they see this aggressive prosecution of President Biden's main political rival, President Trump, at the same time they see special treatment being given to the president's son. And so what are they to conclude? They're losing their faith in our system of justice itself. And that is a a real threat in a constitutional republic like ours. That's why the dialogue today, the questions today were so important. And and I don't think he gave us satisfactory answers. But is it special treatment? Because, I mean, there are investigations happening to both of them. I mean, they've both been indicted by the same Justice Department for very different crimes, I should note. But they have both been indicted. Can you really say it's a two-tiered justice system if President Biden's Justice Department has indicted his own son? Well, look, one of the questions that he wouldn't or couldn't answer today was, why did they allow the most important charges, the the tax fraud charges, uh, to to lapse? They let the statute of limitations run on that. That's very unorthodox, very beyond the standard for the IRS and for a prosecutor in that case. You know, the attorney general couldn't tell us about that. He didn't have any answers for the double standard that we've seen across the board. We've seen, in the last two years, concerned parents labeled as domestic terrorists. We've seen, you know, traditional Catholics uh, be, be targeted, just be spied upon in their own churches. We, we know that the federal court has found well, in and- a 155-page court opinion that the DOJ colluded with big tech to censor and silence conservatives online. That's a court that said that, not us. So he he wasn't able to give answers for that. uh, Attorney General Garland, on some of the points that you made there, obviously people had to really watch these several hours of hearings to know about several of those points. But what you mentioned there at the top, when Republicans were asking about um, the Hunter Biden paying his taxes and that lapsing past the statute, a lot of this was still there when Donald Trump was in office and Bill Barr was the attorney general. It's not like these were crimes that, that allegedly happened, you know, as President Biden had taken office. They were still there. So why didn't you have these same questions for the Trump Justice Department? Well, we did ask questions. I mean, uh, Mr. Barr appeared before us for oversight, just like Mr. Garland. About but Hunter Biden's taxes? Well, no, I, we did, I didn't know about that at that time. I mean, we, we were just finding all this out uh, after the fact. I mean, that's the important point here. But I mean, look look at the, the direct treatment between President Trump and President Biden, you know, the classified documents scandal, right? They're aggressively prosecuting President Trump over that, but they have yet to file any charge against President Biden, even though he had even more documents and more locations. Well, President so, Trump fought a subpoena from the Justice Department and also allegedly hid documents from even his own attorney that were classified documents that were required by the subpoena to be turned over. Right. But, you know, President Biden had him in a box by his Corvette, right? I mean, the point is that the perception of the American people, they see these things very clearly. And what they see is a double standard. It's the appearance of impropriety. And that's a problem. We have to have a Justice Department that is above the fray. They have to project fairness. I mean, it's really important in our system. Well, and, I just think if you, look at them, right if you look at the two different, when it comes to classified documents, we'll, we'll stick on that one. 
they are very different allegations that are against, I mean, there is a special counsel looking into to President Biden's, but the allegations in Trump's indictment, I mean, you read through that, it's pretty damning. They've even were able to pierce attorney-client privilege because the allegations were so bad. But as I listened to this hearing today, you know, this is the first time that Merrick Garland was in front of your committee since he brought, since those two federal indictments have been brought by the special counsel of Donald Trump. There were very few questions about that. And if Republicans are as concerned as they say they are, why didn't more of you ask questions about these investigations? Well, I don't know. We only have five minutes. I mean, I had uh, I had 50 Seems or 100 like a questions. Big question. <laughs> well, I, I ran out of time just asking two or three and he was evasive in his answers. You know, you saw I asked very fair questions, Caitlin. I asked him, for example, did he have any discussions with anybody at FBI headquarters about the Hunter Biden investigations? He said he couldn't recall. I just found that be, to be remarkable, almost unbelievable. Then I asked him if he if he talked to Mr. Weiss himself. And he said he, he did not intend to discuss internal deliberations. I mean, that's not an appropriate answer in a setting like that. We have oversight. It's our job to get those answers. And he didn't provide them. So yeah, well, I don't I just, think he did any, any service to his cause today. I just thought it was interesting that there weren't more questions about the Trump investigations, given what we hear from Republicans on TV and in gaggles. But I do want to ask you about what else is happening on Capitol Hill right now, Congressman, because House Republicans cannot agree on how to fund the government. I know you all met behind closed doors today. Do you believe that there's going to be a government shutdown? No, I, I don't. We had a very productive meeting tonight. It lasted two and a half hours. It was a uh, an intense family discussion, but it was productive. And we walked out of the room, I think, with an agreement, at least the framework for an agreement uh, amongst ourselves on how to proceed. I think there's an agreement uh, on, a, on the top line spending number, which has been part of the controversy that we couldn't decide upon. Uh, we, we've got that now. I think we're going to do a stopgap funding measure that everybody's prepared to do that will allow us additional time to get all the Even the hardliners are prepared to sign on to that? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I think all of them were in the room tonight. We had very fruitful discussion, and I think we've got agreement, at least, the, like I said, the framework for that going out. It was very positive leaving, and uh, we're, in, we're in a good place. So those seven or so who allegedly were not ready to, to sign on to any kind of short-term bill, any stopgap bill, you are saying tonight that they are prepared to, to vote yes for that. Well, I think so. I think the requisite number are. What I do know is that some that voted, of the five friends of mine, uh, Republicans that voted yesterday to stop the rule on the defense spending bill, for example, at least two of them tonight agreed to go along with that. So we'll have the rule vote tomorrow, the procedural vote, to proceed on the defense appropriations bill, and then the others will follow in short order. We, we intend to work through Saturday. I think Sunday and Monday are Jewish holidays, so we'll be out, but we'll be right back at it Tuesday, and I think we're going to meet the deadline. I really do. But if this is dead on arrival in the Senate, then what? Well, then we have ourselves in a good negotiation spot. You know, ultimately, this will be worked out in a conference committee, and everyone knows that. But the House is strong when we pass our appropriations bills and put that, uh, lay down those markers, so to speak. And, and I, like I say, I'm confident that we'll be able to do that. And, and I don't think there's going to be a government shutdown. I think we'll be able to get this done. Do you think Kevin McCarthy's job is safe as House Speaker? I think it is. Yeah, I, I you know. Kevin has a very difficult job. We have a very small majority, one of the smallest in the history of this institution. And so it's difficult to get agreement for everybody across the board, on, especially on big spending measures. So we're deeply concerned about difficult the Difficult to say debt. the least. I mean, as you wrote, House Republicans voted down their own defense bill yesterday. That never happens. Well, it was, it was symbolic, okay? We're all worried symbolic about spending. Of what? 
Well, we have runaway spending in Washington, and we are trying to say that we've got to reduce the spending, reduce the size of government. We want to close the border. A lot of our members were really animated about that. We want to reduce and get rid of the corruption so people believe in our institutions again. There's a lot on our plate. And, and by doing the appropriations bill, we use these as landmarks to get those big measures done. And I, we're united on those causes. Everybody here agrees, on the Republican side anyway, agrees with those objectives. It's just a matter of getting the details done. And you know, and, and it's the sausage making process, right? You're seeing that out in the open because we got back to regular order. This isn't done by four people in a back room like it's been for the last several years. Now you're seeing the ugly process of legislation out front. And you know, this is, the founders knew this. This is what they knew would be involved. And uh, we're moving in the right direction in a positive way. And I'm really confident about it. Okay, you are a member of House leadership. You are saying that you are confident there will not be a government shutdown. We will see if that is accurate. Congressman Mike Johnson, as always, thank you for joining us. Thank you. We have breaking news ahead. After six long months, a U.S. military confirmation has actually happened after one senator's blockade. Plus, can anyone stop Donald Trump in the Republican field? Because the poll positions have shifted in the first primary state. This is a very interesting number. It could be a crucial early test for Trump, but also for who is in second place. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life... I'm a health reporter and have been for 15 years. And even I feel overwhelmed by some of the things I read about the stuff we're eating. My colleague Meg Terrell wanted to take a deep dive into something you've probably heard a lot about recently. Ultra-processed foods. There is a lot to learn there, some fascinating stuff. And some of it is probably going to change the way you shop. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. Tonight, the highest-ranking military officer in the nation was just confirmed. General C.Q. Brown will be the next chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. It took more than six long months, though, for a single military confirmation to go through, all because of Senator Tommy Tuberville's blockade, a blockade that I should note is still in place tonight. He is still demanding that the Pentagon scrap its abortion policy, but with some maneuvering today, he forced Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer's hand. The Alabama Republican responded tonight, by blaming the other side. Instead of voting, Democrats have spent months complaining about having to vote. Senator Schumer could have confirmed these nominees a long, long time ago. Allowing the backlog to build up over six months is his fault. The vote tonight to confirm Brown was 83 to 11. Tupperville voted no, he was one of those 11. But what about the other 300 military members who are still waiting on their nominations to be confirmed, a list that we know could grow by the end of the year? The big picture here tonight is that military promotions aren't usually political. The Senate approves them in large batches without much debate. But this hold has stopped that. And until today, Senator Schumer was reluctant to bring votes on an individual basis. Senator Tuberville is becoming more and more desperate to get out of the box he has put himself in. He's desperate to shift the responsibility on to others. But due to the extraordinary circumstances of Senator R 
Tuberville's reckless decisions, Democrats will take action. They confirmed one nominee today. Two more are expected tomorrow, but Senator Tuberville says this hold still stands, leaving the more than 300 promotions still in limbo, of course, disrupting the lives of service members and their families. And the Pentagon says jeopardizing national security and threatening the readiness of U.S. armed forces. Joining me now for perspective on this, Democratic Senator Tammy Duckworth, an Iraq War veteran, combat veteran, and a member of the Armed Services Committee. And Senator, thank you for being here. I mean, yeah, this is one down, hundreds more to go. Are you okay with the way that the new Joint Chiefs chairman was confirmed tonight? I'm not okay with it. I voted yes because we need a new chair of the uh, Joint Chiefs of Staff. But you have to understand, as soon as we promoted him, we actually added one more name to the list of other officers waiting to be promoted because his position that he's currently in is now vacated. And now we have to promote someone else to fill that position. So there's no way to for us to get these promotions done if we do them one at a time. And by the way, um, you know, Senator Tuberville allowed us to move faster on this nomination and confirm him tonight. Um, normally we would have to wait 30 hours, which would take us into the weekend. And Senator Schumer has put out a statement that if we have to, we're going to be here on Friday and Saturday and Sunday voting. And suddenly Senator Tuberville said, oh, okay, well, I'm going to allow you to go ahead and shorten that time and we can have the vote tonight. So he's being quite hypocritical about this. This vote is for the Joint Chiefs Chairman. It's obviously an incredibly important one, given General Milley is about to to retire. What happens to the rest of them, though? Well, that's the question to to Senator Tuberville because he's holding them all up. And uh, so this is, you know, these these are not small positions. These this is our military liaison to the NATO alliance. This is commanders that are taking command in the Pacific Theater, where. We are facing an, uh, you know, uh, our greatest near-peer competitor in the PRC. Um, and the list just continues to grow and grow. And it really is putting our national security at, in jeopardy. And in fact, Senator Tuberville has said, oh, he wouldn't be doing this if he thought it endangered our national security. Well, I was there today when Secretary Austin said to the entire uh, uh, all the 100 senators that were in the room and says, you are jeopardizing national security. And I've seen officer after officer after officer come up and say, Senator Tuberville, stop this. You are hurting military readiness and and, and really jeopardizing the security of this nation. But is this, how nominees, is this how nominees are going to be confirmed going forward on an individual basis? Because Democrats previously had said they didn't want that to happen because they felt like they were capitulating to Senator Tuberville. It's not about capitulating. It's that you can't do it. The numbers don't work out. If we go through the Senate procedure, the way Senator Tuberville is forcing us to do one at a time, we don't have enough days of the year left in order to get everybody confirmed. And in fact, the list of officers waiting to be confirmed will only grow. Just like tonight, we confirmed General Brown, but immediately that created a vacancy that needed to be filled. So we we didn't get ahead at all today. We took one step forward and then we took one step back because now we have a new opening that needs to be filled. And this is just going to continue throughout the rest of the year. We are 10 days away from government shutdown. And he's playing games and he's playing politics with something that should not be a political consideration. This, he, he has not said that he considers any of these officers unsuitable, unqualified, incapable of doing the jobs to which they're being nominated. But he is take, playing politics with the national security of our nation. But he says he's not stopping. So what happens? Well, this is on the Republican caucus. They have to uh, step forward because right now other Republicans are coming to Democrats and saying, hey, we agree with you. We don't think it's right what he's doing. What well, they need to step up 
and pressure him. Republican leadership needs to step up. Otherwise, they are complicit. They are already complicit in this, um, and they have to uh, push him to lift these holds. Do you envision voting for any more of these nominees on an individual basis beyond the two that are happening tomorrow? Um, I don't envision voting on any more beyond the two tomorrow. I, again, as I said, it is not sustainable because everyone that we promote, then we just add another same number of names to the list. And so we will never get rid of the backlog this way. I want to ask you, I mean, this is such a serious issue that is facing your chamber and what they are dealing with. But there has been something else that has captivated a lot of your colleagues this week on Capitol Hill. As Senator Schumer has said, he's no longer enforcing the informal dress code for the chamber. Uh, that was on full display today. We all saw Senator John Fetterman presiding over the chamber. He was wearing shorts. Typically, for decades, members have been mandated to wear business attire, of course, Senator, as you know. Uh, what do you think? Are you on board with the lack of a dress code? Look, I think everyone will conduct themselves accordingly. I think the vast majority of us will be in business attire. Um, uh, I think it's on each senator to decide how they will conduct themselves, just as it is on each one of us to uh, run our offices. Um, listen, you're not going to see me showing up in shorts and a hoodie on the Senate <laughs> floor anytime soon, uh, but I might bare my shoulders. I don't know. Come summertime. <laughs> <laughs> so no hoodies for you. We'll put you down in the no hoodies category. Senator, thank you so yeah, much, Senator yeah. Tammy Duckworth, for joining me tonight. Thank you. Up next, a 2024 shakeup. Not the one you're expecting, but Ron DeSantis had already been struggling. He was in a distant second place behind Trump. But there has now been a major shift in the Republican race, at least in the first primary state, but not in the Florida governor's favor. We'll tell you more next. A new CNN poll from the key state of New Hampshire shows a tight contest in the race for second place for the GOP nomination. Former President Donald Trump maintains his commanding lead among likely Republican primary voters in the Granite State. But Vivek Ramaswamy, Nikki Haley, Chris Christie and Ron DeSantis are all essentially tied for second. DeSantis, of course, was once considered to be Trump's closest rival for the nomination, but he has dropped 13 points among those voters, these likely Republican voters, since the last survey was done in July. Joining me now for perspective on these numbers, former Trump campaign advisor in 2016, Jason Osborne, and former deputy assistant to President Biden at the White House, Jamal Simmons. Jason, I mean, if you were looking at these numbers, if you had told someone this a year ago and they said that this is where Ron DeSantis was with voters, I mean, what would they make of that? Well, I, there's no question they're not in a position that they want to be right now, right? But I think when you talk to the campaign and you talk to folks close to the campaign, they say that their, their organization on the ground is doing very well. And I think they're focusing on the fact that Donald Trump is less than 40%, that Donald Trump still has, if you even look at that 40%, that there's only 69% of those folks that are saying that they are strongly supporting Donald Trump in this race. So there is a huge amount of movement here that can be made. And the margin of error really is on second place. They have all four folks in there together. I think on any given day, you'd have DeSantis ahead or you'd have Vivek ahead or Christie ahead or, or Nikki ahead. There is a lot of movement that's going to be made in the next two or three months. But in my view, the race right now is for second place. And once there becomes a one versus one race, then you're going to have a lot of those voters that are really don't want to pull the trigger for or pull mark the ballot for Donald Trump. They're going to they're going to look at that second place person and say, OK, I have enough trust that I'm going to go to him. You think so? I mean, Donald yeah. Trump still has a really commanding lead. I mean, you look at these numbers when you're moderate voters, maybe those are the voters who aren't as, 
you know, don't find Donald Trump as appealing. But Ron DeSantis's support from them has seen such a sharp drop off from 26 percent to 6 percent now. He fell a little bit less among conservatives. But those are the moderates. Those are the people who presumably would be on the table. Yeah, you know, New Hampshire voters are some of my favorite people. I just have had such a great time in that state over the years. What has happened over time is that voters get to actually know these candidates one-on-one, person-to-person. You're in the living room with 15 of someone's closest friends. And they decide, you know what, either I like that guy or I don't really like that woman that much. And they decide, oh, maybe I'll support them or maybe I won't. I think this is why New Hampshire is so important. These numbers are going to shift several times between now and January, would be my bet. Because as more of this begins to happen, we'll see what happens. There are a couple of big factors that are going to matter here. Unaffiliated voters. In New Hampshire this time, you don't really have a Democratic primary taking place. So some voters who are uh, Democrats or some who are independents will be able to vote in the Republican primary. So it matters who will get some of those voters. The other thing that matters is who will drop out? Will anybody drop out before they actually go to primary? And if that happens, those 1% or 2% people, the Pences and um, Asa Hutchinson's, some of their voters are going to go somewhere. I think this thing is very But it's fluid. not very many voters. I mean, if you look at Pence's number, I believe he was at 2% in yeah. this poll. Tim Scott, of course— mm-hmm. Uh, wasn't doing well in this either. They're obviously banking on Iowa and the evangelical vote there. But, I mean, when you're looking at this, if you're inside the Pence campaign tonight, what are you thinking? I'm, you know, I think if I'm inside the Pence campaign right now, I'm, I'm excited about the fact that I saw movement up, not, not on this poll necessarily, but movement up on the national poll and also in Iowa after the debate. And I think they saw a different strategy from him during the debate. They saw a different side of him during that debate where he was a little bit more aggressive. And I think also to your point about folks shifting on this and, and what you were saying about the moderate voters, the unaffiliated voters, in this poll it showed that those folks were going towards Christie, which is interesting to me because in 2022, the Dem voters or the, the, the moderate voters, the crossover voters, were going towards the weakest Republican candidate. And right now they're with Christie. I think they start shifting back over once they see somebody start rising up. I think they shift back over to Trump to try and give him the but election. But Christie's in this second place tier. I mean, this yeah. second tier place with these others in this race for second. <laughs> yes. He is because New Hampshire's a strong point for him. He well, he's knows been there how to campaign in New Hampshire. Right. But it's nuts. He also has, I think, it was like 67% of Republican voters have an unfavorable opinion of Chris He Christie. has the highest negativity <laughs> rating, if you look at among these likely voters in, in New Hampshire. So talk about somebody who has a ceiling to grow, right? right? Like, I just don't know what happens to him over time. I think Vivek Ramaswamy is also getting some of these uh, unaffiliated and moderate voters. Um because people like someone who's a little bit, you know, against the system. I think that's going to work out for him. I'm glad you brought up Vivek Ramaswamy because he has some really interesting numbers here. His campaign has been touting these numbers as has the Donald Trump campaign. Uh, and when you look at who he's doing well with, it's Republicans who aren't registered. It's voters who are under 35 years old. He's up 28 points with them. I mean, he has been making this appeal essentially at every stop that he is a new generation of the Republican Party. Who don't traditionally vote in a New Hampshire primary in the dead of winter when it's really cold. Those are not the voters that are getting out there and voting in New Hampshire. And so I think he has a real problem with an organization standpoint and getting out there. And also, I think Vivek has a real problem moving forward. This next debate is going to be very key because there's so many inconsistencies in what he's saying one day, and then the next day he's backtracking and saying it again. And I think voters are going to get tired of that, and Republican voters are going to start looking at other candidates, like a Nikki Haley, or going back and looking at a Ron DeSantis and looking at his record as governor. Can you, uh, with 
how these numbers look. And you were talking about, you know, this is all just days away from the second Republican debate that is going to be next week. Senator Tim Scott, I mean, they have said they're keeping their heads down, they're doing the work. When you look at the numbers, he has the second highest favorability rating in New Hampshire after Trump among these voters. But his numbers aren't, it's not reflected in the actual poll numbers. Why do you think that is? Tim Scott has got a lot of room to grow. I think he is one of the best just on the stump candidates. I mean, I watched his events and I feel like this is a guy in the before times that we would all say he's one of the top tier candidates. Here's his big problem. He didn't fight in that last debate, right? And so at some point, voters want to know, not only are you going to fight for me, if you're not going to fight for yourself, how can I trust that you're going to fight for me? He's got to figure out who it is or what issues there are that he's going to get in there and really mix it up with people so that people recognize, oh, here's somebody who's going to stand up for me, especially in the Republican primary right now, where attitude and people who are walking around with a chip on their shoulder seem to be the ones who have the most sway in the Republican Party. We'll see how these numbers bear out. Jamal Simmons, Jason Osborne, thank you both for joining me. Thank you. Up ahead, Ukrainian President Zelensky was at the United Nations today, taking aim this time not just at Russia, but the United Nations Powerful Security Council. Back with America's ambassador to the United Nations right after this. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. Celebrities of all kinds are speaking publicly about their therapeutic trips, so to speak. It turns out there is a burgeoning industry ready to serve the new influx of people who find themselves turning away from traditional mental health therapy. The gap between what we know and what we don't about psychedelic therapy. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. And Ukrainian President Zelensky had some blistering words for the United Nations as he addressed the Security Council today. Ukrainian soldiers now are doing at the expense of their blood what the UN Security Council should do by its voting. Zelensky is calling on the United Nations to strip Russia of its veto power within the powerful Security Council, saying that that would be a step and helping stop the war. That's unlikely, though, because, of course, Russia's status as a permanent member of that group. Joining me now for perspective on this, the U.S. ambassador to the United Nations, Linda Thomas-Greenfield, and I'm so grateful that you're here tonight. I mean, you heard, you were there as President Zelensky was giving this forceful speech today. He says Russia should lose its veto power. Do you agree with that? Look, they're a permanent member of the council. You said that he uh, understands that they are a permanent member of the council. There are no procedures uh, available to strip uh, Russia of its permanent membership or of its uh, veto power. Uh, We have, however, created a mechanism in the General Assembly that requires Russia or any country who uses this veto power to come and explain that before the entire UN membership. And Russia will always be called upon to do that. And it's, uh, uh, I think it's a very powerful reason not to use that, that power. Yeah, I mean, we just, he had such harsh words for the United Nations just as a body today. I, would, I mean, he said humankind can no longer pin its hopes on the United Nations, saying that they are basically, because of that matter there, it's a deadlock on dealing with aggression. And given that, I mean, in your view and from where you sit and what you see, what can the United Nations do to, to help stop this if there is not that reform that's going yeah, to happen? First, I really understand his frustration 
uh, they are under attack. And the attack is not just on Ukraine. It's on the U.N. Charter. It's on all of the values that we hold dear in setting up the United Nations. But all that said, we do accomplish a lot in the Security Council. We have held Russia to account. Uh, the Security Council has isolated Russia. They don't win votes in, in the council, forcing them to use their veto power. They were condemned by 141 countries. 143 countries uh, condemned their annexations. They are isolated. They're on their back foot, and, and they know it. I know you coordinate, obviously, so closely with the White House. I remember that from the night that Russia actually invaded Ukraine, as you were sitting there in that chamber at the United Nations. When, when you talk about this war, I mean, does the U.S. believe still that this is a winnable war for Ukraine? Ukraine has to win. Because if Ukraine loses this war, we all lose. They are fighting on behalf of democracies around the world. They are fighting to defend their sovereignty, to defend their integrity, uh, the integrity of their borders. They're fighting for their independence. So they have to win this war. And as President Biden said several times during uh, his uh, engagements here in New York, we will stand with Ukraine as long as they need us. President Biden has also called this a genocide. You have stopped short of going that far. You've talked about it being, you know, crimes against humanity. Secretary Blinken has said the same. How come? Uh, They are crimes against humanity, and they have been accused of uh, by the ICC of having committed crimes against humanity in this horrific war. They are stealing Ukrainian children. They are taking, you know, children as young as four months old from their parents. Uh, They are attacking institutions such as hospitals and, and schools. It is a war of aggression. It is a war that Russia should be held accountable for, and we are calling it what it is. Uh, It is a war crime, and it is uh, a crime against humanity. When the Russian officials, Sergei Lavrov, others are are coming in and out of the room, they're not always there for these harsh remarks that others direct towards them. I mean, but they come in and they repeat Kremlin propaganda and lies. I mean, what's it like to be sitting in that room, and do you think they're hearing what you're talking about there, the isolationist they speeches. absolutely hear it. The fact that they're not sitting in the room, it's broadcast on UN web. Uh, it's reported on uh, international news. They know exactly what is being said in that room. Uh, and they pretend they don't hear. But I'll uh, share with you when Lavrov was there, when we had uh, the last meeting on Ukraine. And I had... Uh, Paul Whelan's sister in the room, and I asked her to stand up. And I said, I want Lavrov to see what's in your eyes. I was looking at him. I was sorry, I was looking at her. I was not looking at him. But when I talked to her later, she said he raised his head and he looked at her. He, wow. he heard exactly what I said. That's a powerful moment. Yeah. Ambassador, thank you for coming in and for joining us on this very busy week Good. for you. Thank you so much. Delighted to be here with you. Also tonight, conspiracy theorist and pro-Trump lawyer Lynn Wood now denying that he has so, quote, flipped on the ex-president after it was revealed he is now a witness for the prosecution in the state of Georgia. That drama ahead. A key Trump ally in trying to overturn the election in the state of Georgia may now end up playing a key role in the case against him. 
I'm talking tonight about the pro-Trump lawyer, Lynn Wood. Buried in a new court filing that came out tonight was this line, and I'm quoting now, Lynn Wood is a witness for the state in the present case. Wood, of course, if you don't remember him, was a fierce supporter of Trump's and often pushed numerous conspiracy theories about the election. He's also admitted to hosting meetings about how to overturn the 2020 election results and even made public demands of state officials like this one. They've got to demand publicly, repeatedly, consistently, Brian Kemp call a special session of the Georgia legislature. Of course, Wood is not the only witness that we now know prosecutors have lined up. Four of those fake electors in the state of Georgia have also been listed as witnesses for the state. For perspective on what this means for the case against Donald Trump, I'm joined now by former senior investigative counsel for the January 6th committee, Timadayo Aganga-Williams. There were about 20 or so yes votes to indict Lynn Wood in the special grand jury's report. Of course, that's what they believe that they should do. He was not indicted. Do you believe that if he's a witness for the state, that that's why? Uh, not, Not necessarily. You know, there's a lot of talk of whether or not he's flipped. Which he says he hasn't. He says he hasn't, which may be true. I mean, there's something we would typically call as prosecutors a cooperating witness. That's one of the movies you might talk to as an informant. That means you're signed up with the state. You have confessed to all your crimes. You're going to plead guilty to a crime. And you've basically given it all up. There's also just getting a subpoena. I mean, technically, a prosecutor can go and subpoena anyone and have them compelled to come to court. And we know here that Lynn Wood previously showed up and testified in front of the grand jury, as he said. So he's shown that he's willing to comply with the subpoena. And what could be happening here is the prosecutor is simply saying, that's someone I intend to call as witness, not necessarily someone who's cooperating. Yeah, but given the role that he played, I mean, how would his testimony, even if he has not flipped, as he said, uh, that he said that's just pure nonsense is what he told the Atlanta Journal-Constitution tonight— What does his testimony mean potentially, though, for this investigation? So I think it means two things. First, I mean, he was really a yin and yang with Sidney Powell filing his lawsuits in December of 2020. So any meetings he had with her and any statements she made about her plans as it related to overturning the election or those lawsuits could come in. So under the rules of evidence, if you're a defendant and someone hears you say something that proves your guilt— They can come to court and testify against you and say, I heard Sidney Powell say this. That's also important for for the former president because that's his co-defendant. So to the extent there is evidence that Lynn Wood could testify to that shows the guilt of Sidney Powell and proves up the RICO charge, that's also going to be evidence that could be then admissible against the former president as one of his co-defendants. Because in this kind of case, evidence against one is really evidence against all. So this could be really potentially dangerous for Sidney Powell, who obviously has asked for a speedy trial that's expected to start next month. I mean, do you expect that he would be called potentially? I would fully expect that. I mean, from our work on the committee, they really were together. And in public filings, you'd see the How work. How closely were they working together? Well, you have the, I believe in Michigan, for example, you have the filing there that they worked on together to, to seek to overturn the Election And these these suits were critical, part of the president's broader narrative as to uh, election fraud. So I think, and, you know, Lynn Wood has talked about having meetings where Sidney Powell, uh, General Flynn and others attended where they talked about uh, these different election efforts. So I think it's very possible, and I would, I would bet that there were statements she made that D.A. Willis is going to want to put him on the stand to say. Now, it's also possible that D.A. Willis could be in a kind of way bluffing. I mean, uh, prosecutors can notice a variety of witnesses 
doesn't mean she has to call him. But well, she could. So she could be signaling to the other defendants how far she's willing to go, meaning she will call people whether they're cooperating, whether they're hostile. She's willing to go full board, and that may lead to other people deciding she's in very aggressive posture and they want to cooperate. And so if you're a Sidney Powell and you're, you're Sidney Powell's attorneys, when you look at this, what is your first reaction? It's not good. I think it's one of concern, right? Because any time you have a prosecutor who's not only willing to sign up cooperators, but is willing to compel potentially what we call a hostile witness to come to court, which means someone who doesn't want to be there but has to show up, otherwise they'll get in you know, even more trouble, that's, that's a pretty aggressive posture for a prosecutor to be in. So I think if I'm Sidney Powell and I'm heading towards a speedy trial where I have less time to prepare, less time to file motions, I'm probably taking a step back and deciding whether to reconsider that do I really want to be in front of a jury in Georgia in October of this year. Can they reconsider a, a, a speedy trial request? She could. I mean, Sidney Powell could go back to the court and say, Your Honor, I in fact need more time. What that means practically is that once you pull back on a speedy trial request, you're not going to get a second bite, really. You can't come back and say, I changed my mind. Now I want to go back again. You really get to do this once. What does it tell you overall about Fonnie Willis, the district attorney's strategy here? I think one thing it's been consistent is that she is in an aggressive posture. I mean, it was aggressive to indict 19 people. It was aggressive to request to have all 19 tried together. Here, this addition of naming Lynn Wood was, in a sense, gratuitous. She didn't have to do that in this filing, but she wanted to. So I think that's what we take away, is that she is uh, expecting a fight, and she's indicating that she's ready for a fight. Yeah, it was buried in that court filing, but we found it. Yeah. Uh, Timidaya, thank you, as always, for helping try to decipher what we are reading in these court filings. Still ahead, an American icon and a remarkable day that truly transformed the world of tennis. It changed the world for women for generations. We remember this day in history 50 years ago. It was 50 years ago today that the tennis legend Billie Jean King made and changed history. You have this another double. to the crowd. That was the moment the King, then the world's top women's tennis player, beat Bobby Riggs, the former men's number one, in a match that was known as the Battle of the Sexes. Riggs, of course, initiated that showdown after proclaiming at 55 years old that he could take on the top female player and win with $100,000 on the line. Billie Jean King went on to win in straight sets in front of that global audience, those there, and also 90 million people who are all watching, making it the most watched tennis match in history still to this day. The victory bolstered King's fight for equal pay in tennis, a cause that she continued to fight for decades. A bipartisan push is underway to award King a congressional gold medal for her work in women's rights. Reflecting back on her triumph, the tennis icon said, quote, More than a tennis match, it was a catalyst for social change and one of the most important days of my life. We've come a long way since 1973, but we are not done yet. Let's keep going for it. Powerful words from her there. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. Seen in Primetime with Abby Phillips starts right now. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number Smart Beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. 
And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 Smart Bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.